This is Backstory. I'm Brian Ballow. When you look at the names of people who signed the Constitution, the phrase founding fathers makes a lot of sense. What it glosses over is the role women played in the Republic's early years. We will raise the next generation of children devoted to the virtue of this country. Today on the show, what America has expected of its mothers. How have those expectations changed? And why are so many books about mothering written by men? Never hug and kiss them. Never let them sit on your lap. If you must, kiss them once in the forehead when they say goodnight. Plus, what Mother's Day looked like to the woman who dreamed it up. This wasn't mother apostrophe S. So not your mother, but mothers S apostrophe. A collective of mothers. A history of motherhood in America. Today on Backstory. Don't go away. Major support for Backstory is provided by an anonymous donor, the University of Virginia, the National Endowment for the Humanities, and the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation. Today's episode originally aired in 2009. From the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, this is Backstory with the American History Guys. Welcome to the show. I'm Brian Bellow, here with Peter Onuf. Hey, Brian. And Ed Ayers. Hey, Brian. You know, one question that we history guys get a lot is, how come there aren't any history gals with you in the studio? And that's a perfectly good question. In fact, it's such a good question that it's way above my pay grade. But I will say that 40 years ago, nobody would have asked that question. And that's because 40 years ago, history departments were mainly made up of guys. And more importantly, and probably not surprisingly, those guys were mainly writing about other guys. In fact, history consisted of guys with women making bit appearances as wives of people who were really making history. Out of the 60s came a new generation of scholars determined to change that. Among them, an early American historian named Linda Kerber. She poured over the historical record and set out to tell a different story about the role of women in the founding period. So I was kind of mucking around, trying to fit these pieces together. And and I came upon this commencement address at Columbia College in 1795, in which this young man is speaking in these rather romantic, rotund phrases about the future of the Republic. And he turns to the women and he says, you fair ones, the future of the world is in your hands. Contemplate the rising glory of confederated America. Consider that your exertions can best secure, increase, and perpetuate it. The solidity and stability of the liberties of your country rest with you, since liberty is never sure till virtue reigns triumphant. Then I started noticing where in other places that I read, people talking to women, uh, be careful who you marry. Marry men who are virtuous. Marry men who will be good citizens. And then together you will raise, you know, the next generation of good citizens for the new republic. The idea that women could do something more than just sit back and watch history happen, Kerber began to see, was not a new idea. It was present all the way back to the 1790s. Sure, they couldn't run for office or vote or own much property, but what they could do was key to the success of the new nation, and that was to raise good citizens. This new role for women, Kerber came up with the name for it, Republican motherhood, that's Republican with a small r, to her, it was a progressive ideal. After all, if women were responsible for raising good moral citizens, they were going to have to have access to a good education themselves. But that was only half the story. The contrast, the severe contrast, is when you hold this view of the world and where women fit in it against the legal system that the founding generation inherited from England and did not touch, which at bottom were the laws of master and servant. Americans make them worse. They add a layer of master and slave down at the bottom. They work up to master and servant, parent and child, and at the top is husband and wife. And in that law, the father controls all the property that the mother brings to the marriage and all her earnings during it. 
he controls all the earnings the child brings to the family. If the father wishes, for example, to apprentice a child to someone the mother thinks is a cruel master, the mother has no say in this. If the father wishes to pocket the child's earnings, the mother has no say in it. So from the outset, from the very beginnings of our nation's history, we have this paradox. If you want to be a good citizen and you're a woman, the way to do it is by being a good wife and a good mother. But at the same time, there are all of these structures in place that limit your ability to do that. And so in honor of Mother's Day, that's what we're going to be looking at for the rest of the hour today. Why has it been so difficult to be a good mother in a country that equates motherhood with, well, being American? And before you guys jump in, I'm going to suggest an answer. I think at least part of why it's been so difficult is because what it means to be a mother has constantly changed over time. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we can date this to a fairly short period in the late 18th century when motherhood was pretty much a function within a household economy. We talk about women working now and unpaid work in the household, but when the household and the farm or even an artisan shop is the center of production, mother, woman, wife has got a central role. And, and that is if a printer, for instance, dies, his wife may take over the print shop. So uh, the gender roles are not constructed in the same way that they will be later on. They're not nearly as inflexible, and mothers were not necessarily primarily mothers. You know, in the 19th century, what happens is not merely that women step into more restricted roles, but that they take on a new kind of role as the capitalist economy really speeds up. So you start having railroads and telegraphs and steam engines and the penny press and the growth of cities and westward expansion and all these things going on that, that people are familiar with. And what we forget is that that is a new way of living your life. And so it becomes clear that if an economy that has really very few rules and very few customary constraints is going to be the, the norm, you're going to have to have people who have internalized all the discipline and energy and anxiety that a capitalist economy feeds on. Right. So it becomes the woman's job, the mother's job, to raise these self-governing, self-motivating young people, especially young men, who can go out into the world and drive themselves, who can make it on their own, who can keep the capitalist economy humming. So these these moms are, are, are not only kind of the proto-citizen creator moms. They're the proto-Harvard business schools of the 19th well, century. They're, they're, yeah. they're creating these men who are going to go out and act not only ethically, but in an autonomous way, be innovative. Right. And and the it's, real it's a lot more than citizenship. And it seems to me that it's not merely the kids who are leaving the house, but in a real sense, it's the fathers who are leaving yeah, the yeah, house yeah. In, a, in a way they never have. And the jobs centuries. are leaving the house. Right. The jobs are leaving the house. You go to the job. So the absent father creates this kind of sentimental, emotional vacuum that mother dominates. It becomes mother's realm. The home is associated with mother in a way that the house never was. Right. The, Matter of fact, that phrase. Right. What makes a house a home? Exactly. And the right. answer it's is mom. mother. Mom. And we can actually see that emerge in the 1830s and 1840s. Right. It becomes codified. It comes written down. You, you start finding books about domestic economy. Right. You really start seeing ladies' books, mm -hmm. you know, magazines mm -hmm. that are coming out that are celebrating this and telling you, here's what you have to do to be a good mother. And part of it's husbanding the resources, so to speak, of the household. Nice, nice. <laughs> but the other part of it is really focusing on the moral growth and well-being of your children. Mm -hmm. So it's not like on the farm, we'll take care of you yeah, for a while, point, then we'll yeah. hand the farm to you, then you'll take care of us and we'll die. And, uh, but instead, you find that the bond, the contract, is almost ineffable. It's invisible, right? right. But if you can show through ritual and through expressions yeah. of gifts, and think about the dominant kind of music of the 19th century, if it's not a minstrel show, mm -hmm. is the sentimental song about leaving mom uh -huh. behind. Yeah. But when you leave home, what do you take? You take a piece of your mother with you. She 
If you're just tuning in, we're talking about ideals of motherhood in American history. For the past few weeks, we've been fielding your comments on the topic at BackstoryRadio.org, and our producers have invited a few of you commentators to join us on the phone. We have Barbara calling in from Fairfax, Virginia. Barbara, welcome to the show. Thank you. So my question is, what is motherhood in America? We're a country, first of all, it's a country of, of Native Americans, and then we've brought in all these immigrant cultures, which definitely bring in different ways of mothering. Mm-hmm. So I'd like to hear, what's your definition of that? Well, you're obviously right about the diversity of uh, every kind of identity of, of class and space and time and, and ethnicity and all these different kinds of things. And it's interesting, however, that the common denominator, when you do think about what's as, as American as, and motherhood is one of the, the big things, why is that? It's because it's really one of the few things that we all have in common. But then if, if we're all coming from different cultural backgrounds, what is it that's the American way of, of raising a child from the mother's perspective? Is there one? Well, I think the American way, I would say from the beginning, is uh, mothers are aware of the world around them and their mothering strategies have to do with high rates of mobility, uh, people moving all over the place, moving up and down the social ladder. So what's really important is a kind of socialization, uh, child rearing that enables individuals as they grow up and leave home to function effectively. I mean, this is a familiar old argument. Uh, first made perhaps by Alexis de Tocqueville in Democracy in America when he talks about individualism. The psychology and the idea of the individual, somebody who can go it alone, is something, of course, that doesn't come out of the air. It comes out of the home, and it's something that mothers teach their children. Yeah, that's what I was getting at because, you know, when you look at, let's say, an Italian culture, families are very, they live together, the grandmothers there with the aunts and uncles and everything. In this country, uh, largely because we were, you know, populating the country and moving out west and things, we, we pulled that whole family unit apart, so we did have to raise our children to be independent. I think something Barbara said is, strikes me as really true, and it kind of goes back to de Tocqueville, too. This is a lonely country. You know, you don't have all of the extended families because we've not really stayed in place long enough to become extended. And the, the nuclear family, that's often all the families have had, whether you're immigrants or moving to the West or you're enslaved. You know, in each of these instances, you know, when I go back and read the diaries and letters of the women from the 19th century, there's just a longing for help <laughs> and for yeah, family, yeah. especially people. And I think that if there's a commonality about American motherhood compared to various old worlds from which people have come, mm-hmm. it might be the burden placed on mothers and all of this because of loneliness. What do you think, Martha? No, I, I think that's a great point, actually. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I think I'm satisfied. Well, thank, thank you so right. much. Thank I appreciate you for calling. Much. Okay, you're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. It's time for a quick break. When we get back, we'll return to my century, the 20th century, and hear from an expert on parenting experts. More backstory coming up in a minute. This is Backstory, the show that looks to the past to explain the America of today. I'm Peter Onuf, and I speak for the 18th century. I'm Ed Ayers, and I speak for the 19th century. And I'm Brian Ballow, voice of the 20th century. Today's topic... The History of Motherhood in America. A nice, small, manageable topic. (laughs) We're going to take another phone call now. It is Anne from our hometown of Charlottesville, Virginia. Anne, welcome to Backstory. Hi, thank you. Well, we're talking about motherhood, and of course, we've all got one. So, so Anne, what's your question? Um, I guess I'm calling more on the trying to become a mother side of things. Ooh, wow. Um, so I'm uh, going to try to start getting pregnant next month, I guess. And you you're know, calling us for advice? I, I know. <laughs> uh, well, I was going to tell you a little, a little story that leads up to my question. Okay, um, good. Which is that in the, in the process of all this, I've started taking, you know, so many uh, vitamins and supplements and so on that my, uh-huh. um, my nephew thinks I'm going to live to be 100. But, um, <laughs> you know, I've cut out caffeine, I've cut out alcohol, I've cut out sugar and all this before, you know, I'm even trying to conceive. And I was having dinner with a friend of mine who's also a pediatrician the other night, and she said, you know, how is all this 
baby making mm-hmm. going. And, and I said, you know, I just hope I'm doing everything right. Uh, I just feel like I haven't done all the things I'm supposed to do yet. You know? right. So she said, uh, you know, it's important to do all the right things, sure. But I really see in this as a feminist an extension of, you know, this is her, her talking, an extension of the, the reproductive control of women. And that kind of, you know, it, it surprised me a little bit um, because I think I'm so lost in it at the moment. You know, it's yeah. so, I'm so focused on doing everything right because in my perspective, you know, I'm making another human from what I eat and what I do and who okay, I already so, am. First of all, Anne, I want to say on behalf of the Backstory team that we approve of everything you're doing. <laughs> and it's just coincidental that we're all guys. Right. Right. <laughs> so but, uh, what you're saying, what you're asking, Anne, is is there a backstory to the regime or the circumstances under which modern would-be mothers operate? where they feel like they're carrying the weight of the world on their shoulders. And from a feminist perspective, that sounds like a male burden that has been inflicted on on women. And, you know, I think that's right. Uh, And I will suggest why. And that is the ways in which men moved in in the 19th century. Not my century, but I'm moving in on it here, and he'll pick it up, I'm sure. Go ahead. Men moved in on childbirth, which had historically in early America, in my century, and well into the 19th century in many areas of the country. Yeah, had been a female experience in which women would gather around, and uh, it would often be an extended moment of female solidarity. Men were excluded this could go on for weeks with the laying in and then the uh, the first couple of weeks of uh, recovering and adapting to the circumstances of motherhood. And the presiding genius in the birth experience would be a midwife. And then in the 19th century, this was shunted aside in favor of male doctors. Yeah. Who Ooh. then went back and pointed out that despite millennia of success, that it had been done all wrong. And it's interesting is that this was done not only by upper-middle-class white families in the Northeast, but slaveholders actually brought in male doctors to deliver babies to their enslaved women to make sure that the investment was protected. So if you wanted to, you know, actually make the case as thoroughly and discouragingly as possible, which I think maybe I've just done, (laughs) that it began with control over the moment of birth and then extended back because the next episode you would have had in all this would have been after sort of the discovery of genetics. uh, One of the first things that guys came up with is genetically improving the race and eugenics uh, in the early 20th century, which would have been another way. It gets worse and worse. It it gets worse. And don't, don't hang up. Oh, no, I'm right here. I'm right here. I'm it. <laughs> and may I, may I provide a somewhat happier spin uh, that comes out of my century? Yeah, that's the 20th century, In the late Great. 1960s, uh, we have historians would call it second wave feminism, which emerges in the late 1960s and the 1970s. But out of that uh, comes primers like Our Bodies, Ourselves, uh, where women begin to take control back from these male doctors and take more responsibility for asking questions and, in fact, exploring scientific options. I think that's a semi-happy ending of the story. Here's the problem. I think it sets up your dilemma. It begins to place responsibility back with women themselves. And here we find you stressing out that maybe you're not doing something correctly. You know, we focus so much on the birth process that we neglected to think about all the things that follow afterwards. And the great pressure then is not merely to birth a perfect child, but to be perfect every day until they get into the college of their choice. Um, <laughs> yeah. you know, so, I, Anne, I, stop worrying about childbirth and, uh, and start and, worrying, and about, start worrying the, about the about rest what of your kind kid's of uh, life. middle school you're going to be able to and get this kid. It's all in. up to you, Anne, no pressure, okay? <laughs> uh, you know, my advice to you is stop taking advice. And now we're going to advise you on names for your child. <laughs> <laughs> no, my advice to you would be to hang up. Uh, it's, been, <laughs> it's been really wonderful talking to you. Thank Anne. you so much. And good luck. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye.
If you're a new mother or a mother-to-be and you're looking for some real advice, one place that your Google searches might land you is mothering.com. The website launched in 1998 as the online arm of Mothering Magazine, a magazine that no longer exists. It bills itself as, quote, the home for natural family living, and it hosts one of the most active parenting forums on the web. Now, some contributors are more active than others. Take the example of Liz, the mother of an eight-month-old in Indianapolis. Liz is, to say the least, prolific. At last count, she was responsible for just under 19,000 comments. I asked Liz how, as a new mother, she could possibly find the time for all of those posts. When you post a lot, you type faster. So <laughs> where a lot of people are you know, sitting there and some people Thinking don't about what they're going to say, you just post. Yeah, exactly. So give me an example. I've spent a little time on the website. Uh, it's remarkable. Give me an example of what somebody might learn from mothering.com. Well, um, one forum that discipline techniques, uh, like Sounds one, like they're not working so well. Well, my husband's in charge now. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I found really useful is that on the website are a lot of people who have kids who are older than mine. They've been through it, many of them with more than one kid, three, four, five kids even. Mm-hmm. And so when I post, hey, my baby's doing this really weird thing, they can reply, that's totally normal. All my kids did that. Or, yeah, my kids did something like that, but it was more like this. So you're kind of turning to a bunch of non-experts who have used their experience rather than some kind of scientific expertise to soothe your anxiety. Yeah, you know, because one of the issues people have is that a lot of these basic knowledge things don't come through. You know, if your mom, for instance, if your mom didn't breastfeed, you don't have her to give you that advice about breastfeeding. If your mom didn't do whatever it is, you don't have that advice. Right. But a lot of stuff on mothering is not just from their own experience, but stuff that they've also gone and looked at the scientific studies and research. But they've kind of tested it. They've battle tested mm-hmm. it. Exactly. And, and so what this website does is it, it, it doesn't disregard the experts, but it kind of mediates that advice through the uh, hard lessons learned from experience. Just one last question I have to know. Could you uh, drop us a line here at BackstoryRadio.org when you hit the 20,000 mark? Okay, we will do. That was Liz, a mother in Indianapolis who gets by with a little help from her friends at Mothering.com. You know, guys, this suggests that choosing between parenting advice from a book and parenting advice from a friend, well, today it might not be an either-or proposition. You know, Liz was suggesting that the Internet allows us to blend the two. But that wasn't always the case. Back at the beginning of the 20th century, my century, guys, and they were all guys, with doctor in front of their name, and they all seemed to have doctor in front of their name, started telling mothers what they should do without any regard to centuries of mothering experience. That's because those guys with doctor in front of their name had science at their disposal. Here's the problem. That science was anything but definitive. Half the experts favored gentle nurturing, while the other half insisted on a stern, disciplined approach. One expert who fell squarely within the stern camp was John B. Watson, widely known as the father of behaviorism, What's behaviorism, you might ask? Well, it was pretty simple, really. It argued that everything we do could be conditioned by training. Watson is one of the experts profiled in Raising America, Experts, Parents, and a Century of Advice about Children by Anne Holbert. Now, Watson only published one book about child-rearing, but Anne Holbert told me that that book, Psychological Care of Infant and Child, made a huge splash when it was published in 1928. A lot of mothers bought the book in the spirit of, you know, this guy seems to know what he's talking about. Let's see what he's got to say. Mm -hmm. And we're a little incredulous, which (laughs) you can understand when you get just a little bit of the flavor of his rhetoric. 
Won't you then remember when you are tempted to pet your child that mother love is a dangerous instrument? An instrument which may inflict a never-healing wound? A wound which may make infancy unhappy, adolescence a nightmare? An instrument which may wreck your adult son or daughter's vocational future and their chances for marital happiness? Watson said he was going to help parents shape the personalities of their children. That really had not been a goal of his predecessors, whose aim was to more oversee the health and survival of children Uh and help mothers do that. But the notion that you were preventing all kinds of psychological distress was sort of innovation of the 20s. The idea was we now lived in a very complicated, challenging, cold, impersonal world, and kids better be able to handle that on their own. And if mothers are smothering them with love, this was the period in which the term smother love was first (laughs) coined, uh, they would be totally ill-equipped. Mothers just don't know when they kiss their children and pick them up and rock them, caress them and jiggle them upon their knee, that they are slowly building up a human being totally unable to cope with the world it must later live in. It's all about how parents should, above all, avoid emotionally coddling their children. The better to free them to interact with their environment and become whatever it is that the kid, in fact, chooses to become. So in a way, they had to let the child uh, experience their environment unmediated by the parent. That was the concept. The interesting thing about Watson is why that actually was what mothers somewhat wanted to hear. Because after all, if you don't have to be constantly at the ready emotionally for your children, you can have a freer and more independent life. And that was something that women in the 20s wanted. Well, that's fascinating. Inadvertently, you're saying, uh, he provided a pathway towards liberation for women. I think he did. And it is interesting. The, the vision of what a modern mother was, was to be less tied to her children, less emotionally dependent on her children. Her children should be less emotionally dependent on her. All of that, in many ways, I think, said something to women about a new possible role in the world for them. But what do you think that advice, the so-called professional advice to moms in general, has done to the self-confidence of moms in general? Well, I wish I could say I thought they had achieved their ostensible goal, which has been really ever since the turn of the century, to make mothers and fathers the confident, independent, serene guides of their children that we presume all parents (laughs) want to be. I think actually, of course, their success has depended on doing something of the opposite, that is kind of making them uneasy enough that they'll always reach for a book. <laughs> or at least the next expert. edition. Or the next edition. And I guess I would say I'm not actually a believer that we can point the finger at the experts for corroding parental confidence. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, they're there ministering to something that is somewhat natural, that is, you know, confronted with babies. Um, parents really often don't know what to do. Right. And... Uh, they are looking for all kinds of counsel, and, and even if the experts aren't necessarily easing and soothing their predicament, I, I think we can go a little overboard in accusing them of turning everybody into nervous wrecks. I'm not sure they do that either. I have more respect for parents than that. <laughs> well, let me ask you, I, I'm just fascinated by these uh, mothering websites. It did strike me that maybe they split the difference between these authoritative experts and lots of moms who simply have a lot of experience under their belt and can really share some of that knowledge with uh, new parents. You know, I can't claim to be a huge uh, expert on the huge array of, you know, mother-to-mother advice out there on the web, but I have read various books that have emerged from the sort of post-expert culture of uh-huh. right. we're now going to talk to each other, we're going to be gathering around the village well, right. you know, which starting, is what, Starting with the er person-to-person defeat of the experts, our bodies, ourselves. 
Right. And and what to expect when you're expecting. It's written as a dialogue. Right. It's, you know, the whole idea is we're, we're talking to each other. And I would say that the surprise to me has been how judgmental the community of mothers itself is and how really? entrapped some mothers feel by that. There is something actually quite liberating for women in being able to say to male experts, you know, we know a lot better than you do and we're really not going to listen to you. Yeah. When suddenly you're hearing it from the woman down the street who insists that if you even consider stopping breastfeeding at six months, you are a heretic, it's a little harder to say. Very interesting. Uh, you're now, part of that is that she's down the street. Well, it seems to be true even on the internet. You know, she can be. <laughs> and I think if you dip into some of them, it can be scarier, really. I really have only one more question, and it did occur to me as I was reading your book. Uh, where are the women experts? Well, it's um, a really good question, and I guess I came to think in the course of doing a lot of my research that various women who actually were in the labs doing interesting work um, had the wisdom <laughs> to see that they really didn't have enough to go on to inform <laughs> anything like the kind of dogmatism that it takes to have something that will work as a child. Right. So, so women weren't big jerks. Right. That's it. <laughs> well, thank you so much for sharing your time with us. Thank you. Anne Holbert is the author of Raising America, Experts, Parents, and a Century of Advice About Children. We'll link to some of her articles about parenthood at BackstoryRadio.org. It's time for another short break. When we get back, we'll take more of your calls about the history of motherhood in America. We're back with Backstory, the show that puts a little old back into the news. I'm Peter Onuf, your guide to the 18th century. I'm Ed Ayers, your guide to the 19th century. And I'm Brian Bellow, guide to the 20th century. We're talking today about the idea of the good mother in American history. How has that idea changed over time? And why do we hold up motherhood as such a core American value? A lot of you have already weighed in on our website, backstoryradio.org. And our producers have invited some of those weigher inners to join us on the phone. Hey, guys. We got a call. It's from Ty from Oakland in California. Ty, welcome to Backstory. Hi. Well, we're talking about motherhood. Uh, that's a subject of interest to you? Yes. My question is, um, historically, have African-American and white mothering styles varied so greatly? I think my friends and I have this idea that they've been very different until recently. Mm -hmm. So I was just curious if there's anything um, historically that we could point to that would actually bear that out. Wonderful question. question. Yeah. Do you want to start back in slavery days, Ed? I'm just yeah, wondering if I, uh, the conditions of slavery would have led to a different style. And we know the realities of family are different. Yeah, you have to talk about strategies because you have to talk about the different conditions they face. And obviously, when any day that you get up, your children can be sold away from you. Um, it changes things. And also does the fact that uh, as soon as you were physically able to get up off the birthing bed and get back to work, that you were expected to do so. And uh, strategy that evolves as a result is what's called fictive kin, that with so many mothers being sold away from their children, and with the death rate, the, the rate of young women having babies dying was remarkably high, that you start having a lot more sense of collective responsibility for mm -hmm. children. And you know, children were um, sort of taken care of often by a woman who was too old to work in the in the fields or the house, and by other children who were too young uh, to mm -hmm. be productive in that way. You know, after slavery, one of the first things that black families do is the women want to stay home with their children more. And there's a lot of white complaint about this right after the Civil War. But the sad fact is that for generations after emancipation, work for 
black women was largely in town, in white homes, and work for black men was largely out in the country or in the, yeah, in the woods where they're cutting lumber. So the, the tensions on the family just continued all the way through right. until really the Great Migration when industrial jobs gave black families some of the same material underpinnings that white families had enjoyed for over 100 years. Well, I, you know, I actually, I, I didn't even really think about it sort of from a slavery perspective. I was sort of thinking about probably the early 20th century and African-American mothers raising children sort of in a world where there was sort of very active, aggressive racism and, yeah. and teaching them yeah. to navigate that world. Yeah, but you know what, Ty? I, I think Ed has really given us a good language to continue into the 20th century because he talked about strategies. Mm-hmm. And although the obstacles were not as draconian as slavery, they were almost as draconian. The first thing that comes to mind about African-American mothering is that most African-American mothers are also workers uh, at a time Mm -hmm. when increasingly white mothers are being removed from the workforce. So you're back to strategies. How do you be a good mother when you're also working 8, 10, 12, 14 hours a day? And uh, as you know, African-American women were disproportionately employed in the field of domestic service. Right. Uh, and what are they doing? They're raising other people's kids. If you think about the words that white people used as they imagined with affection to refer to black women, it was mm-hmm. mammy. And mm-hmm. so it was the projection of motherhood for white children onto black women. And in that image... There's not really a place for the black child. So you have this sort of celebration of the natural mothering capacity of black women, but everything is stacked against them for the the nurturing of their own children. Right. Well, Ty, uh, thanks so much for calling. Thank Thank you, Ty. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Hey guys, we have a call from a very special place, Kingsport, Tennessee, birthplace of Ed Ayers. Awesome. Billy, Billy, welcome to the show. Thank you. What's your question, Billy? My question is, what do you three men know about motherhood? (laughs) (laughs) At what point can I acknowledge that this is my mom? Hey, mom. Hey. <laughs> I, I, it was so stupid. I didn't realize Billy from Kingsport was going to be mom till I actually heard her. I knew we'd have to go to family members for calls eventually. <laughs> Since we have this rare opportunity, and, you know, we are three guys. Uh, none of us are moms, as far as I know. I want to ask you, how did you learn to be uh, the good mom that apparently you were? Uh, Intuition? Was it your mom? Did you read Dr. Spock? Uh, Did you read magazines? I mean, how do you get to be a good mom? Trial and error. (laughs) Trial and error. (laughs) Let's see, which category did Ed fall into? No, he's a trial. He's a trial. <laughs> well, I, I will say this. I, I am the oldest. Uh, so if errors were to be made, I was the first target around. So what are some of the errors you made? Oh, you've caught me off guard. I, I guess not spending more time with them. Oh. Very time-consuming, teaching and trying to be a mother. Mm-hmm. I taught for 30 years. My... Uh, other interests, I guess, probably interfered with the time I should have spent being a mother. That's nonsense. But he turned out all right, so I must have done something right. But, Mrs. Ayers, was that really an error? I mean, be honest. No, honestly, no, no, I honestly no, no, don't no. feel that it was. I don't know much no. about you, but I know that Ed talks about what a terrific teacher you were and but how he your wasn't students... in my class, so <laughs> he really doesn't know. <laughs> no, he's in a class by himself. Oh. Uh, do you think that's really an error? I mean, this is a serious question. Don't you think, I mean, my mom was a working mom, and don't you think there's something that makes moms better if they work, sure. that makes, oh, their, makes their kids perhaps respect them or at least exposes them to different models of momhood? Well, I actually do because you feel a sense of guilt that when you're away from them that much, you feel that you need to double up on the time you do mm-hmm. spend That's with them. That's very interesting. 
Well, and I think it's important too, uh, Mrs. Ayers, that uh, children learn a basic lesson, and that is they're not exactly the center of the universe. Wait, I missed that day. <laughs> <laughs> Mrs. Ayers, Mrs. Ayers I, I have another question for you. I, I've always wondered about this. Do you like Mother's Day itself? I mean, being mom is such a 24-7 kind of job. And then all of a sudden there's this day where, you know, all this attention is drawn. And you love it. <laughs> Mrs. Ayers, we love that kind of definitive answer. <laughs> All right, Billy. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. Happy Mother's Day, Mom. Well, thank you. It's good talking with you. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye-bye. 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 Send her a bunch of roses. Mom loves roses. Make it an extra large bouquet. Send her a bunch of roses. Red, red roses, remember Mother's Day. Well, guys, speaking of Mother's Day, we have managed to get almost all the way through our show without even talking about it, which, of course, would be a major omission, especially considering that this year marks a big anniversary for the holiday. One hundred years ago, this May, Congress passed a law designating the second Sunday in May as Mother's Day. Four years earlier, West Virginia had become the first state to declare an official Mother's Day. Why West Virginia? Because that was the home state of Anna Jarvis, the mother, if you will, of Mother's Day. Her story is both little known and tragic, meaning that it's right up the alley of our friend and fellow history podcaster, Nate DeMeo. Here's Nate. Anna Jarvis loved her mother. And because she loved her mother so much, Mothers around the world get flowers and cards and candy and hugs from their kids every May, which must have Anna Jarvis spinning in her grave. She was born in 1864 in West Virginia to a woman whose name was also Anna Jarvis. And her mother, Anna Maria, to her daughters, Anna Marie, was a remarkable woman. The elder Anna was a feminist and a progressive and a bit of a socialist before any of those words meant anything. In Virginia, in the middle of the 19th century, back before the phrase West Virginia meant anything. She traveled throughout Appalachia, organizing women's groups, teaching them about basic health, and how to demand workers' rights after teaching them what those rights were in the first place. During the Civil War, she brought women together to tend to sick and wounded soldiers, regardless of whether they wore blue or gray. After the war, with her baby Anna in tow, she held meetings of mothers on both sides in these proto-group therapy sessions finding closure through shared grieving kind of things. And she promoted something called Mother's Work Day. This wasn't mother apostrophe S, so not your mother, but mothers, S apostrophe, mothers plural, a collective of mothers. It was a radical idea. Let's take a day, and it would be a day of demonstrations and political consciousness raising, not of flowers or spa gift certificates. Let's take a day and recognize that what mothers do is work. And let's organize those workers the same way that people were starting to do at mines and mills and factories. This was the work of her life. And when she died in 1905, her life became the work of her daughter's life. Anna Marie, the younger Jarvis, was 29 years old and single, with no child of her own. She was devastated by her mother's death. And at her funeral, she handed out hundreds of carnations, one to each of the mothers in the congregation. She had picked up the torch of her own mother's cause and wouldn't put it down for the rest of her life. She delivered speeches. She published pamphlets. She wrote to governors and newspaper editors, senators, mayors, anyone in power, all in a campaign to get the government to recognize Mother's Day. And she succeeded and failed at the same time. People love the idea of a Mother's Day because people love their mothers. And importantly, People loved the story of Anna Jarvis loving her own mother. It was a national holiday by 1914, and Jarvis kept going, talking about her mother and Mother's Day all over the world. And for people all over the world, maybe wondering why they'd grown apart from their own mothers, maybe wishing their own children would thank them once in a while. For people all over the world, Anna Jarvis became the platonic ideal of the devoted daughter, and they wrote to her. So many wrote to her to thank her, to unload about their mother-child relationships that she had to buy a second house next door in which to store a correspondence. 
Mother's Day would roll around every year, and Anna Jarvis, a woman with no child of her own, would get flowers by the score, heart-shaped boxes of candy by the carload, which made Anna Jarvis furious. The holiday, designed to continue her mother's lifetime of effort working towards social justice and collective action, had gone commercial. Anna had thanked her mother by devoting her life to building a kind of living memorial, and it felt like all she'd accomplished was making it easy for people to go and thank theirs with a prepackaged sentiment and a penny greeting card. And so she railed against it for the rest of her life, spending all of her modest savings on campaigns against the commercialization of Mother's Day, filing lawsuits to stop celebrations, condemning confectioners, fighting florists. But the candy kept coming, and the flowers didn't stop. And when she died, penniless and blind, in a state sanatorium in Pennsylvania in 1948, her room was filled with Mother's Day cards. That's Nate DeMeo, a reporter out in Los Angeles. You can listen to more of his strange and wonderful accounts of American history at the memorypalace.us. We'll link to it from our own site, backstoryradio.org. Wow. I I think we can just end our show and present that as American history in a nutshell. Workers, commercialization versus the individual, and the notion that mothers work— drops out mothers collectively and, you know, the daughter's devotion to mother, the individual, you know, reigns supreme. That, too, is another theme in, in, in American yeah. history. Yeah, you know what? Oh, yeah. Oh. I, I, I was worried about all that silence. Yeah. There. You know, it's easy to uh, distinguish the market or capitalism or commercialization or whatever from human emotion, mm-hmm. like somebody's forcing people to buy Mother's Day cards, right? And um, Admit it, you've done it. I have, <laughs> and you know, I've struck with it myself because there's really nothing quite as far removed from my own sense of aesthetic and, you know, authenticity and all this than buying a poem that somebody else wrote on yeah, an assembly yeah. line. <laughs> but my mom told me a yeah. couple of times when I didn't send her a card, <laughs> that she felt a kind of an yeah. absence. You know, is there something wrong? You know, do, do you not right. really care? You know, a letter was nice, but I'd rather have some words that rhyme. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. And I think the significant thing here is that families have been dispersed and forms of expressing solidarity within families that are spread across the continent, I think that's generated an opportunity a need for communication, for effective and effective bonds that can reconnect families. And to say that this is ritualized and commercialized, that doesn't mean that it loses its meaning. That is the meaning, is to make those connections across space and and time. Okay, guys, you've almost convinced me. But look at what has dropped out entirely, which is another moment in time, which you know well, Ed, it's the nights of labor. It's all this ferment about labor. It's people organizing. It's the great possibility of the populace. That's the beginning of this terrific account of the Jarvises. And that's dropped out of the picture entirely. That's just gone. Yeah, I think that's right. I guess I would say that as fruitless crusades go, this was seems to me, like, what, top of the list. Yeah, because it's like, there's Let's, always Esperanto, Ed. Well, there is that. But you, know, you think about what is more individualized than your mother? Mm-hmm. Nothing, right? I mean, that's mm-hmm. the one thing yeah, that yeah, yeah. is unique. And to generalize that into a sort of um, you know, collective strikes me as the least likely— What is more universal than the unpaid work of mothers? And that's certainly true, right? I would just say not only has that been neglected or even suppressed— but it's been completely replaced with instead, what's the main sentiment expressed in Mother's Day cards? I think that it's gratitude for sacrifice. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Right. And if you can yeah. show through ritual and through expressions yeah. of gifts. Uh, and and that, that card you send That Mother's yeah, Day exactly. card. Really, Mom, you raised me for uh, 21 years, gave me everything. Here's a card once a year. Call it even. And what you're saying is, I can't repay you, but I know it. That's what you're saying in that card. Which I think is the the main theme of Mother's Day. I give up. I'll never convince you guys. But hey, maybe you listeners can. 
drop in at our website and tell us what you think about the holiday. Is it the embodiment of individualism and crass commercialism? Or is it the perfect opportunity for expressing profound emotions that don't get expressed the rest of the year? You can find us at backstoryradio.org. And while you're there, sign up for our free podcast and weigh in on the shows we have in the works. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr. Whatever you do, don't be a stranger. And happy Mother's Day. When you get a chance, would you please call your mother And thank her for the good years that we had Today's episode of Backstory was produced by Tony Field, Rachel Quimby, and Catherine Moore, with help from Lydia Wilson. Jamal Milner mastered the show. Our staff also includes Nina Ernest, Andrew Parsons, and Emily Charnock. Special thanks today to Kevin McFadden and Elliot Majersik. Backstory's executive producer is Andrew Windham. Major support for Backstory is provided by an anonymous donor, the University of Virginia, the National Endowment for the Humanities, and the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation. Additional funding is provided by Weinstein Properties and History Channel. History made every day. Brian Ballow is professor of history at the University of Virginia. Peter Onuf is professor of history emeritus at UVA and senior research fellow at Monticello. Ed Ayers is president and professor of history at the University of Richmond. Backstory was created by Andrew Windham for the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. 